أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسوله سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وبعد الحمد لله ما شاء الله I'm joined in my basement uh, with my good friend and uh, uh, former student uh, uh, brother Faiz uh, who recently came back from Yemen uh, he's a doctor he graduated from a local medical school and you what you did your residency in uh west at west suburban uh, uh what is it college university oh no it's a west suburban community hospital community hospital that's where you did your your residency and then did you do some sort of specialization Mm-mm. just internal medicine okay yeah. internal medicine so mashallah uh being a person who at one time entertained the possibility of going to medical school and having sat for the mcat uh, and, and all of that jazz, mashallah. Um, I can tell you that whenever you ask somebody who wants to go to medical school, uh, why are you going? They say, because I want to help people. And I'm like, yeah, sure. You want to help yourself to, uh, uh, mashallah, an Audi or a BMW or a Mercedes. It's not haram. I'm not trying to hate on you if you drive a nice car, mashallah, la quwata illa billah. But, you know, it's kind of a shock when you meet somebody who actually went to medical school and then, like, actually did something to help people. So, for that reason, I'm very happy to welcome uh, uh, Brother Faze, uh, uh, Dr. Faze, I should say, uh, uh, to my house uh, this evening. And I just wanted to ask him a little bit about his uh, experiences in Yemen. So, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Wa alaikum <coughs> Speak up, it's fine, man. Wa alaikum salam. Mashallah. Um, so let's get started. You went to Yemen on a medical mission. Mm-hmm. How 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 did you get caught up in all of this? Is this something you do like every summer, or like what? How did all this start? So um, it's not something I do. I I do every summer. I always like heard about people going on medical missions to like El Salvador or random places, and I was I was always interested in it and. Like you said, I, I went to medical school to help people, so <laughs> I always thought that's something I could do. Um, and sort of the reason I went to internal medicine too, because I felt it was a field that if I need, if I wanted to go out and you know go abroad, and I could apply those skills, you know, anywhere without, you know, compared to certain specialties where you sort of need equipment and stuff like that. So um, I just graduated residency in July, and. Uh, Basically, I just took my boards. I hadn't I didn't start working yet, uh, and I was at uh, Majid Asman one day, and Sheikh Hamza was uh, talking about the Yemen situation, <laughs> and uh, and it sort of just struck me that that night. I just sort of started researching about it, and I felt I felt like you know I, I didn't know what I could do besides donating money and stuff like that, talking about it. Um, so anyways, I went to sleep that night. The next morning, I woke up, and one of the WhatsApp groups I was in, um, it's a group with uh, physicians in there, just uh, uh, this guy, Dr. Zahir, Dr. Zahir Sahlul. Um, Who was, by the way, interviewed on NPR today, I think, about this very mission, right? Mm-hmm. So he, he put out a message saying, you know, we're, uh, we're going uh, to Yemen for a medical mission September 8th to 15th, uh, or September 8th. Initially, the plan was still the 15th. Um, and if anyone was interested, you know, just message him privately. So right then I just took it as a sign. I was like, I was just thinking about it the night before I saw that message and I was like, okay, I am interested. And I, I had nothing, honestly, I hadn't started working yet and I had time. And every time like an opportunity like this came up before in the previous three years, uh, I, I was always like working. I didn't have, I didn't have vacation time and I, I really had no excuse. So I talked to my wife. I just I was I just recently got married or in the past year, and I talked to my parents, and I talked to Shekamza, <laughs> and I talked to a few other people, and I, I just decided to go. Mashallah. Uh, so yeah, so this is not something that you're you're normally accustomed to doing, no. Mashallah, <laughs> at all. So it was a new experience, I assume. Yeah. 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 Okay, so then once you you spoke to your parents, you spoke to your your uh, wife, which by the way, Allah Taala reward them for uh, uh, letting you go and encouraging you to go. People oftentimes forget this that encouraging someone to do good deeds is itself a good deed, and sometimes a person might reach um, through their good deeds um, that maqam uh, uh, through encouraging other people to do good deeds that maqam that they can't reach through their own. But after you, you spoke to them and they're all supportive uh, of you, what was the process from there? 
So, <clears throat> and then after I got there, okay, um, I messaged uh, Dr. Uh, Salul. Um, he's the organizer of the, or he's the head of this organization called Med Global. He used to be the director of SAMS, the Syrian American Medical Society. Um, so basically, messaged him and said, "Hey, I'm interested." He right away asked me to send my uh, CV and my picture, of my passport, and he was just like, "All right," because it was only like a week or ten days. It was well, I forgot the date. It was October twenty something when I decided. So I sent him all the documents, and then he was working. August twenty something, right? Yeah, August twenty yeah. something. It yeah. was like ten days before the trip was supposed to leave. So he was trying to get me the visa. They actually were all trying to get their visas. So he like right then I just said I'm interested, and he took it as a yeah, and he just sent all my stuff to the mini embassy. Um, after that, I started still I still started doing mushroom. I mean, there's people that were saying it would be dangerous, and there's um, people that were saying you know like you just got married, and um, so I was doing a lot of mushroom. Um, and then one of the mushrooms I got was just you know do sahara and keep going with the process, and if something stops you, it stops you. If not, just go. And that's what I decided I'd do. So. Um, Mashallah, you mentioned just getting married. It reminds me of the story of the Sahabi Sayyidina Hanfalah radiallahu ta'ala anhu um, about whom a number of hadith are transmitted and who was a very beloved Sahabi to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that uh, he was just married, newly married on, and his wedding night was supposed to be the eve of Uhud and so he received special uh, permission from uh, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to stay back and not leave with the army but to spend his wedding night in Medina Munawwara and then after that um, catch up with the army in the morning time and uh, uh, despite being being tempted to stay back um, he in a state of janaba of not even being able to make ghusl he rushed to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and he joined the army and he was shaheed fi sabilillah on that occasion Obviously, mashallah, uh, uh, you're not pious enough to have done that yet. Uh, <laughs> Alhamdulillah, <laughs> every decision of Allah Ta'ala has so much khair in it. But uh, um, it's, you know, I don't know. I, I don't want to be sentimental, but it's, mashallah, heartwarming for me to uh, you know, think that there's still people in the ummah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that despite these things, you know, their iman causes them to do, uh, to, you know, to, to, to go out in the path of Allah Ta'ala to help somebody and to make the world a better place. With, you know, uh, despite despite all of those other adversities that a normal person would, it would be roadblock for them. But uh, uh, you know that there's still some people their iman overcomes those things. And mashallah, you're back. You're 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 with your wife. She'll probably throw something at you because you didn't bring the milk. Uh, uh, if she hasn't already done so, she'll probably do it soon enough. Inshallah. Um, but yeah, that's cool. So continue. So you so all the process was going through. You had no roadblocks. What happened then? Like, what was the process up until the day of your departure? So, basically, at that point, I sent my passport, sent my CV. Um, then I had to... So once they... I guess they did a background check on me or something. Um, at that point, I had to FedEx my passport to uh, somebody who... Some organization in Washington, D.C. Um, who worked near the Yemeni embassy, um, like an NGO. Um, I think it was Project Hope. I'm not sure. <laughs> but they... Um, they took it to the Yemeni embassy and got the visas, like an expedited process. Um, and at that point, we were just looking for tickets. So, like, <clears throat> so did you did you have to pay for your own ticket? Yeah. So, usually, yeah, we I had to pay for my ticket from Chicago to Cairo, and then a different NGO covered it from Cairo to Yemen. Those were difficult to get. We couldn't get those on our own. So. That's also mashallah. That's also a sunnah as well. When you go out in the path of Allah Taala, that you. You spend your own life and you spend your own money, mashallah, for the sake of Allah. That's beautiful. Allah Ta'ala accept it. Okay, so you, you got your ticket, you got your visa squared away. Was there anything else you had to do before getting on the plane? <clears throat> Besides that, <clears throat> I mean, I was just reading about like certain diseases that we don't have here, you know, developing countries, typhoid and parasites and stuff like that. Um, just prepping for the trip, packing. Cholera was probably a big thing. <laughs> Tell us yeah. a little bit about cholera. So cholera, uh, right now, I think Yemen has the largest epidemic uh, recorded. Um, I think 700,000 people are suffering from cholera there. Um, it's not a very, like, severe um, strain of cholera, but it's the fact that people... What do you mean by it's not severe by number of people infected or by the intensity by of the By the intensity. Infection? So uh, there's a lot of people infected with it, but it doesn't... For a normal person with you know, a normal immune system, it won't kill them. Mm-hmm. 
but the problem over there is that they don't. There are a lot of them are malnourished, which causes them to be immunocompromised, and, and it is you know there are deaths from it. Not as many as certain places. Um, I think I think there's like certain African countries with more deaths, um, but this is the largest epidemic, meaning the number of people. And I can explain that later why it's affecting. I mean, why they told us they think it's affecting a lot of people in their area. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you did some research. Mm-hmm. Now you're sitting on a plane to Cairo. <laughs> Wondering what the hell have I gotten myself into, or, or what what was that like? So, I said, okay, I got in the, I was actually excited at that point. Um, once I got the okay from my family, and, and I, you know, I was at the airport, and everything seemed fine, I was, I was, I was pretty excited. I mean, I was excited, but, like, scared at the same time. Um, sitting in the plane, we get to Cairo, so we had to, we were in Cairo for about 20 hours, uh, wait, um, waiting for the flight to Yemen. And I started uh, talking with to the doctors who were with me. So these guys are a little bit more experienced. There's uh, Dr. Zahir Sahlul, like I mentioned before. There's a guy named Dr. John Keller. And this guy is Christian, a uh, 70-year-old man. Wow. Yeah, in good shape, though. Um, a really nice guy. And then there's... Uh, yeah, man. <laughs> Muslims, man, you need to go to the gym if you want to help <laughs> Yemen. You need to, like, walk and stuff like that. Right? This guy's 70 years old, uh, mashallah, going through the mountains in Yemen, treating sick people. Our people, mashallah, like half the masjids praying in chairs because of <laughs> biryani-induced uh, malaise. Uh, and there's actually a female with us. She's uh, um, Dr. Nur Akhras. Um, she's uh, yeah. Sweet. She was on the NPR yeah, yeah, interview yeah. too. So yeah. she was with us too. Actually, she was uh, when I asked Dr. Sahlul if it was going to be safe because I was just trying to, you know, ask, answer the question for my parents and my wife. He said, "Oh, there's a, a hijabi woman with three kids is coming with us. Tell them that's a." Uh, that's uh that she's safe enough for her to come. she feels like it's safe enough to come and i'm like okay that was enough to convince me um so all four of us, uh, don't kill us there's a hijabi here <laughs> so yeah um so i started talking to them about some of their old um stories uh and they've like just last year john and uh dr zahir went to uh Aleppo, and they actually and they actually took another guy from chicago um named samar Atter, and their story was just like intense they went to aleppo and there's like they worked in a hospital and there was like bombs dropping near them and it was just like and they and it was like one of the most dangerous like just the way they talked about it it was just i i mean so it was like i was in awe but at the same time i was like wait this is what you guys do (laughs) so i started getting a little bit scared at that point but um i mean they assured me that i was like it's nothing like aleppo don't worry and whatever and i was just like um but yeah, it was just that, and so that's all I was thinking about, just like, and a lot, I also started thinking about, like, I just recently graduated, I don't know much about the Middle East, and what kind of, you know, what kind of things affect them there, um, and I was just trying to read up on whatever I could before I went, so it could be a benefit, you know, I'm going all the way here, I might as well, you know, do as much as I can, so. So 20, 20 hours in, in Cairo, mm. and then you finally get on the plane to Sayun. Sayun. So, so about that, we were initially supposed to go to Adan. Um, that was the plan that was supposed to they said that's they said other than safe it's controlled it's far away from Sanaa where most of the stuff is going on um and that was the plan so when we got to when we were in Cairo since we were there for so long we actually met with I don't want to, I think it's it was the advisor to the prime minister or someone someone like that I don't remember exactly who it was but um uh, mind you, everyone was speaking Arabic, so I didn't know much about what they were talking about. But they were making like they, he was talking about what we were going to do in Yemen. So a lot of the um, big time Yemenis, when the war broke out, they they all moved to Cairo or they moved out because they said that like this, since they have money and they're you know people would kidnap them for ransom and stuff like that. They're targets, so they all moved like to Cairo and stuff like that. So. This, we met this guy who basically started talking to us about a trip and just uh, logistics and strategizing the trip. And I, I, at that point, I didn't even know what they were saying. They basically changed the destination to Ma'rib. Uh, Ma'rib is closer to Sana'a. It's, uh, I think, 40 kilometers is from what I heard. Um, yeah, it's yeah. The, the site of the, the famous dam in, mm-hmm. yeah, right in cl- pre-classical or classical Yemen mm-hmm. that allowed them to have such rich, mashallah, agriculture, the dam that broke before Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa is coming. Mm. Yeah. And the Sheba's temple, I think, too. Yeah, Queen the temple, Queen yeah. of Sheba, the Malika of Saba, mm-hmm. uh, Bilqis, mm. fr- was from there. Alayhi salam. So, at that point, um, so we changed the destination to Ma'rib is because <coughs> he was saying that most of the displaced people um, from 
uh, from the war-torn areas are coming into towns near the war-torn area. So one of them was Marev, and he said there was a camp there, a cholera camp, but there was a IDP camp, internally displaced person camp, um, and that we'd do more benefit going to Marev than Adan, so we decided to change uh, the destination to Marev. So That's one of the things like uh, Dr. Zahir Sahlul was talking about yeah. in the NPR interview, that mm. like stuff comes to Adan mm. or to Sana'a, mm. Or, or, or to Hudeda, and it doesn't necessarily make it to all the different so, provinces like at the same rate. So Ma'arib, he was saying that they only have like some very depressingly limited number of hospitals yeah. and amount of medical equipment and stuff like that. So you guys must have been really, really uh, uh, like very in demand over there. Yeah, they, they said that they've never seen Americans. I don't think any NGO has ever been to Ma'arib. That's what they said, the health minister. I believe it. Yeah, um, They said the... The, the the so the population of Mada before the war was three hundred thousand. So they had one hospital that had gotten bombed in two thousand fifteen. Um, Alhamdulillah. Oh. some more bomb a hospital. And uh, so they only had one hospital, three hundred thousand people. And then after the war, they had one point five million people in the same one hospital and a few clinics. Um, and so I've heard I heard multiple uh, statistics, but there it was around like five to ten like doctors or five to ten internal medicine doctors for three million people five to ten uh, pedi- pediatricians um like one or two like one or two neurosurgeons one orthopedic surgeon so the numbers are really limited for three million people that no, those numbers are like totally different than it is here so we knew that there the resources were limited um so yeah that's sort of why we went there so like the and then the other thing that you were saying that the the aid does come to places like Sana'a, and NGOs are in Sana'a and stuff like that. They don't come to places like Marib. So that's why I think he sent us there. Yeah, I can imagine because, uh, like, at least from our co-workers at Islamic Relief, one of the things that, that I hear is that there are a lot of places in Yemen where we're basically the only game in town in terms of a foreign, uh, foreign NGO providing providing aid and assistance. So I bet you guys were probably, mm-hmm. I mean, you guys were probably, like, just the only people there. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, one of the things one of the things they mentioned in the NPR interview earlier in the day was that Yemen is like one of the most well armed <laughs> populaces in the entire world. Yeah. There's there's like more per capita handguns in Yemen and and uh, probably other types of arm armaments than there are in America. How was it? Was it safe? Did you feel threatened? Did you feel like, oh man, like if if Ami and Abu knew, they would have never given me permission to go, or like how was it? Um. <clears throat> So initially, so when they said we were going to Marib, I, I, I Googled it, um, and uh, I was still in Cairo, and I Googled it, and I saw, like, just, you know. You Googled your fate. Yeah, I just Googled it. I mean, it sounded dangerous because it was so close to Sanaa. Uh, so I, I, I mean, I decided not to worry my parents. I was already here, so I was like, you know, I, didn't, I, just, I didn't call them at that That's point. That's good, by the way. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's not lying. It's not being deceitful. <laughs> it's not cheating. You grown man. Sometimes it's selfish when you tell too much truth to people. You're being selfish by doing that. Don't make them stress out. Handle your business. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to go, go. If you're going to bail out, bail out. But, like, just handle your business. You don't need to, like, make your parents have a heart attack about every single detail of life. But yeah, anyway. That's what I figured. They couldn't. They wouldn't be able to do anything about it, and they would just stress the whole time. So I figured they wouldn't say much. Um, so we get off. Uh, so at that point, I mean... I didn't, I didn't. I wasn't too scared or worried. I was. I was like, okay, whatever. Like, I'm with a couple of guys who know what they're doing, and they've been through. You know, they went to Aleppo last year. They won like Chicago end of the year for the. Like, it was like really dangerous the trip that they went to. So I wasn't too worried at this point. Um, we land in Sayun, and as soon as we get off the plane, we don't even get into the airport, and these military trucks just come like pick snatch us up. Um, these are Saudi coalition forces. So they had two armored SUVs and two. Um, sort of like these pickup trucks with machine gun turrets in the back and they just like took all our suitcases put them in the pickup trucks and they just like, so snatched you up in a good way not <laughs> yeah, yeah, like no, 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 not in a bad way yeah, not like come with us <laughs> yeah that scared me a little bit because i was just like i didn't know like this was gonna happen so mm. i didn't nobody knew so um but this was the protection they were trying to provide for us so um they you know they just put us in the in the, in the cars um and it was just like everybody had like machine guns or some type of gun, and, and they're just like, and that, so it just caught me by surprise. Uh, so I was like, wait, why is this going on? Um, when I saw everyone else calm, I said, I remained calm. But then I was like, okay, man, maybe this is a little bit more than I thought it would be. Um, <laughs> so, so we were on, so we were in Sayun, and it was a drive to Ma'rib. Um I don't know the distance, but it was like a six-hour drive um, because there's a lot of checkpoints and roadblocks and 
and you can't. I mean, you don't go that fast on those roads. Like I think one twenty kilometers is the is the um, average speed that people drive or 100, 100 kilometers <clears throat> um, an hour. So we start driving. They take us to a base, give us some food, and then they're like, "All right, we're gonna go to Malib." So they start driving same way. So the way we drove is like a machine, like one of those machine gun cars in the front, the two armored vehicles in the middle, and another one in the back, and they're just driving down this. You guys were in the armored vehicles. Yeah, we're in the middle uh, in the armored vehicles. How was the AC in there? There was AC in, in mine. The other one I heard didn't have it. Yeah. <laughs> so I was uh, on the low. Was, was, was Sometimes okay. the back of the pickup trucks in the middle of the desert. I know that from Mauritania. Alhamdulillah, uh, I didn't ever ride on one with like machine gun turrets, but the back of the pickup truck sometimes is really uh, uh, comfortable uh, when you're in the hot summer mm. in the desert. Yeah, and there was like five or six soldiers in, in each of those, like just sitting there with like around the turret, and one guy standing for like the whole time while, while we were driving. Um, so we just kept driving. I was, I was like, th- these guys were pretty calm the way they're driving. I was, I felt calm. I actually fell asleep in that drive. But then we stopped. Um, we stopped like at this gas station, maybe two hours away. And uh, so apparently, this was a tra- This we were going to transfer from Saudi forces to Yemeni forces because that was their like sort of limit or their their point to where they were going to drop us off. So we stopped at this like gas station. They they take us out of the car. Um, it's like, it's like a gas station in a little town area. I mean, not town, but like just a few stores and stuff. And there's like a few people, maybe like 50, 60 people you could see walking around going to stores and stuff. And, uh, they get us out of the car and they're like, okay, we're going to transfer you to the other cars. Um, but all of a sudden they're just like, go, go back in the car, go back in the car. And they just like start driving again. And I was just like, wait, what happened? (laughs) Nobody knew what happened. And then we start driving, we go 10 minutes later into the middle of the desert and then they do the transfer there. So apparently they were, they were worried about like, I don't know who, but they just felt it was an unsafe area to do a transfer. Um, so we go to the desert. Wow. (laughs) SubhanAllah. Yeah. So that scared me. That was, that's when I got scared of because the the, it was the look on other people's faces because I didn't, I didn't want to get worried from for like no reason i just when i when everyone seemed calm i was calm when i saw people like look worried i started getting worried so we go to the <laughs> middle of the desert and so we just pull up now our four vehicles are just like they're parked i'm like what's going on and then all of a sudden like five or six vehicles like come in you know like i don't even know where they came from i guess they were behind us and it's like all these like there's like two pickup trucks the same thing like how we had with machine guns in the back or turrets in the back but there's all these Yemenis in like uh, lungis. I don't know what they're called in. Uh, yeah, Izar. <laughs> Izar. Yeah. And uh, you know, t-shirts and like, and and they all have it like I think AKs in their hands. And I was just like, what's going on? <laughs> I was a little worried. But uh, they came in. So basically, these were the Yemeni forces that were going to take us to Malib. So they come in and they were just like, uh, um, I mean, they transferred our stuff. These guys weren't talking to us. They looked worried. They looked uh, scared. So this was like a really weird transfer. I have pictures from it. But. Um, yeah, so anyways, they put us in the, uh, in these cars. So these cars weren't armored. The ones, the Yemeni ones, they weren't. I don't think they have as much money as Saudi or whatever. So then they, we had two armored, uh, two unarmored vehicles and the two pickup trucks. And then there's another pickup truck with like a bunch of like 15 year old kids with guns, <laughs> leading the pack. So we, so now, so so the thing about this ride was that they looked worried. So the whole time the Saudi guys looked calm. These guys looked pretty worried. I didn't know what we were driving through, but they kept looking around, like holding their gun, pointing at things out their window. Um, you know, just you could just look at look at the, they just looked like they were like tense. It was like a tense drive for three hours. Um, apparently, the car before um, the soldiers in that car were about to shoot someone in another car. I don't know. There was like it was just a really tense three hours, and then we finally got to. My Whoa! Do you say they were about to shoot someone yeah, in another car? Like, <clears throat> I rem- so apparently, what happened is there was a car. So they were ahead of us, and there was a car coming down this hill, um, and it just looked shady, I guess. So they both. At the same time, I wasn't in there. Someone told me, like one of the other doctors told me, they both like opened their windows, pointed their guns at it, and like cocked it back. And they were about to shoot, but then they like waited and they saw it was just a civilian. They pulled it back. Mm-hmm. So they were all ready to shoot. It was already tense. Um, anyways, we how in the, amongst you know amidst that tense uh, situation, um, how were their reactions to you, the different soldiers, the Saudis and the the Yemenis? How 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 did they react to you? Were they did they treat you like guests that they're happy you're here or are they like, oh man, we have to protect these people and go in the middle of like crazy land? Um, everyone, like, the Saudi forces seemed a little indifferent. They were calm. It, there wasn't, it wasn't too tense So uh, with them. So they seemed like calm or indifferent to us. It's just like we're doing our job. The Yemeni ones with me, these guys... So we didn't know what was going on. Why they, I mean, they looked a little scared or worried. So I didn't... I, didn't, I mean, but... 
It depends. There are certain people that were really like welcoming, like the leader of that, the head of the security. So this was like a private militia or something that was escorting us to Maradib, I think. Um, so the leader of it, this guy knew English. He came, introduced himself. He's really friendly, really nice guy. Apparently, he's like a pilot, and he, um, and he, he's trained like overseas, and like he was really well respected. So this guy like was really like cool and really welcoming. The other guys were just young guys. They, they're sort of indifferent to. Um, some of them seemed scared. Some of them just were chewing cut and just like sitting in the cars. <laughs> just like it was just like whatever. But uh, the Yemeni people next to me, there was a guy from Yemen who came with us from Cairo. Um, he was a logistician for the trip, but he was like, you know, calm down, just sleep, don't worry, you know, like stuff like that. Like he was like, he was really nice. Um, but yeah. So then. So you we, get you get to Ma'rib. Mm-hmm. What 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 then? Uh, we get to Ma'rib and we pull up. How to long us, did you stay there? And we stayed in Ma'rib for. Four and a half days. So our trip got cut a little early. We were supposed to leave Friday. We got there Monday, Zuhur time. Um, we were supposed to leave Friday night. Um, we had a flight Saturday morning to Sayun. So, um, a we, flight from Ma'rib to Sayun? Uh, no, I, so we're going to have to do the drive again Friday night. Uh-huh. <laughs> or, sorry, so we were going to do the drive Friday morning? Yeah, I think Friday morning we are going to do the drive because they said it was too unsafe to drive that do that drive at night. Um, so we're going to leave like Friday, I think after Juma was a plan, and then go back and then get a hotel in Sayu, and then the next day, next Saturday morning, was a flight back to Cairo. So, yeah, we got... And, like, I don't imagine... When you say get a hotel in Sayun, <laughs> I don't imagine Sayun itself is a very big city. No. It probably doesn't have much more than one or two hotels. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. first hotel we got to is, like, full. And then the other one, we finally found another one. Uh, but, yeah, there's not that many. It's a small town. It looks like... If you've been to Saudi, it's, like, the poorer areas of Saudi. That's, like, how most of Yemen looked, at least from where I saw. But um, So you get, to, you get to Ma'rib. Yeah, we get to Ma'rib. Is it straight um, to work or... Yeah, there's like this. So we get walk into the hotel, and there's like all this security around us, like twenty or thirty soldiers, and um, twenty or thirty soldiers. The hospital administrator comes, greets us, like kisses us, the guys on the cheek, and like welcome, welcome. He like brings us in. They feed us like mandi, and like they're like really nice. Everyone is like smiling, and they're all like excited that we were there. It seemed. Um, and, you know, we ate, we went back to the, so they gave us, like, they let, they, we had rooms in the hotel, we all were going, but we had a meeting right before, and this is where it, it was, like, sort of, like, I got a little scary, because I remember um, one of the doctors was like, oh, man, this is worse than Aleppo, because <laughs> I, I, we were all tense after that drive, and I was just like, wait, what? <laughs> but um, I think he did, I mean, I think it's just because it was so militarized there, and everybody had weapons, like you mentioned before in the NPR, I think everyone has guns, so it just, like, it just seems like... Um, it's, just, it's, it's a little scary when you're, if you're not used to looking, seeing guns. Um, so, yeah, we get to the hotel. That day, the governor of, of uh, Yemen wanted to meet us. We, 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 Marib. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Marib. Um, I forget his name. So he, he invited us over, and uh, we met him. He talked to us um, about... Uh, he talked to us about, like, basically the needs. They told us that, like... They told us like how the situation was. They told us about the population. It used to be, like I said before, it used to be three hundred thousand, uh, and it went up to one point five million. Um, Those are all ID IDPs, all IDPs yeah. Um, and they're all in tents and huts and camps. Some of them are, are living in other people's houses. Um, so he's just basically just telling us about the situation, and what we should do. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much the first day. And then after that, we they set us up in this uh, in the hospital. They showed they showed they took us to the hospital. Um, they showed us the hospital. It was really, really in bad shape. It had it was bombed in 2015, uh, and they repaired it. But it it looked like I mean I hadn't seen a hospital like that for like I probably saw one like that in India maybe like back in the day. But uh, um, there was only a few doctors. Uh, they said a lot of the doctors like a lot of them the locals like finish medical school and then like bounce to go somewhere else and and, and practice somewhere else. Um, so there's not that many people there. So. They set it up in a way that basically we would work in the the clinic in the hospital, like all four of us, and we would just see as many patients as we can in, in a, like a full day, um, and that's how it started. Every day, they <clears throat> people just lined up. It was like really intense because. I think so like, how, how was it? Are you giving everybody, you know, like two minutes and bounce, or are you taking care of some people more than others, or? Yeah, so a lot of so a lot of the things we saw, I mean, how and you were working with, I assume, the local nurses and doctors as yeah, well. Yeah, we were working with local <clears throat> nurses, uh, local doctors. I had a translator with me. Um, we 
it it depended on like the case. So like a lot of people, there was a lot of cases of people just bringing because they heard American doctors are in town and they would bring um they would bring like they would come with like random problems that you know you can't really do much about. Uh, and then there's people who were really sick. So it, I I sort of prioritized depending on how you know how I felt. Um, some people I took thirty minutes on, some people I took like five minutes on. It just depended. Um, but. It what was, were some of the more kind of gut wrenching? Oh, the worst thing! We, the worst thing I saw was the first day we walk into. Um, they showed us that, so they gave us a tour of the hospital and they showed they took us to the ICU. And the ICU, there was like this like nine year old boy, um, and I think they talked about him on NPR. But this he kid was playing soccer and he walked on a landmine. Allah. And he uh, he this he was he he said he was nine or ten. And he looked like he was five. He was so small and uh, he was so skinny. And this had happened, I think, two weeks before we came. And he had like he basically had uh, injuries to his his abdomen, and they ended up having to open him up and take some bowel out and repair it, and all these like multiple abdominal surgeries after this. And because of that, he was he wasn't he couldn't eat, so um, he wasn't able to take anything from the mouth. And here in America, if that happens, we give him like something called TPN, uh, some kind of nutrition through the IV. They don't even have that there, so he was just basically starving for like. I think 10 or 11 days and he's just sitting in the ICU staring at us um, we talked to him um, he was a, he's awake and talking to us but he didn't look like he was going to make it there was another kid right next to him in the ICU 15 or 16 years old gunshot to the head um, and he didn't he wasn't awake he was uh, they had just there was one a neurosurgeon in that the whole province and he had, they performed surgery on him like a few days before we got there and he didn't look like he was going to make it either um so those are pretty bad. Um, besides that, I mean, what were common things people were suffering things? from? So a lot. Of, so what's basically going on there is that there's just not enough healthcare. So people. So the things that we deal with here: diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, um, just you know, abdominal pain, urinary infections, stuff like that that we can easily treat here. That you, know, you could just go in five minutes, go to urgent care, go to clinic, and get treated. These people can't. You know, they can't get to doctors. They don't. There's not enough. There's not enough doctors to treat them. So. A lot of things I saw were just stuff like that, like chronic. There's like people dealing with like issues for months, years, like you know, urinary infections untreated or high blood pressure, sugars in the 500s. So um, that was a lot of what I saw. Um, and then the re- reason being is that they they're, I guess, allocating the re- their resources towards you know people like the kid upstairs who you know walked on the landmine or the guy who got shot in the head or people with like war trauma, and it's sort of these guys are sort of getting ignored the people with just regular you know regular sicknesses um so that's a lot of what we saw in the clinic it was just trying to help them uh, th- those kind of people coming in with like common common things so, um, so like you you were saying in the beginning that you don't have any like whatever mega specialization or mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. but would you say it's uh, uh, pretty accurate to say that the most help you did wasn't f- in some sort of like highly specialized like helping someone with some acute thing mm-hmm. um that they're going through rather just the everyday people that you saw and help them just kind of deal with their 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 chronic conditions yeah i think that, that that's that, at least for me it was um i just finished internal medicine and everything i saw there i mean i saw a lot of what i saw here and it was it was it was it was easily treatable like these are things that like would take five minutes like i saw you know women would come in they'd say i'm you know when i when i when i pee or urinate it burns um just give them some antibiotics it was like you know a lot of stuff like that that was in a so and we bought like six suitcases full of medication so that helped um, a lot of antibiotics a lot of and i assume that like medications are not commonly available there. yeah they, <clears throat> they had a pharmacy but they were like <clears throat> really limited um and it's really hard for them to get medication they didn't have it they didn't have like I mean, compared to what we have here, is nothing. But uh, I mean, they had a pharmacy, but it was like a lot of people just were people hadn't hadn't been able to even see a doctor. And these are people who actually have like you know transportation, and they're able to come to the hospital. I mean, this is we didn't even get to. I mean, we didn't even get to work in the camps as much as we wanted to, just because of security reasons. We got to see the camps, the the IDP camps, um, but that's where we we uh, suspect that most of the you know the, we suspect is a lot worse. Um, <clears throat> There's a town Aljo if it's a little bit closer to Sanaa, um, and they didn't want uh, me or the or uh, Noor Akhras to go there, I guess for security reasons. So we stayed in the hospital, and um, Dr. Zahir and Dr. John ended up going to Aljo, and they said it was like a lot worse than Madrid. So I didn't get to see that myself, but it's the same situation. They just said a lot worse. I mean, more malnutrition, more cholera, uh, more 
just sick people, just not with no medications and um, yeah. So t- tell me more about the cholera. What did you see, and what was going on? Mm-hmm. And were you afraid that you would get like you know get mm-hmm. infected? Did you mm-hmm. take some some precautions against that as well? Mm-hmm. So first, like the cholera. So the reason the reason um, or they suspect and you know we suspect too that the the cholera epidemic is so bad is because it's just sort of like just lack of education um, the sanitation poor sanitation with so many people in, in such small areas and so many people living in like IDP camps and um, just their access lack of access to water they all drink from like wells and stuff and, and, and once these get contaminated once one person gets cholera and contaminates it um, it just hits everybody else so it, it, like I said earlier that the strain wasn't so severe that it was like killing people like you know the, the mortality isn't as high but the morbidity is pretty bad um, so <clears throat> What was that like? So initially, what happened? The numbers rose really fast, but then these, uh, I think, who WHO uh, opened up a cholera treatment center there for like oral rehydration. Um, I mean, basically, just so people don't know about what, what cholera is, it's basically um, this uh, bacteria that causes this watery diarrhea. It just activates this area in your uh, colon that just makes you secrete a bunch of water. So you just get de- you dehydrated. Um, you know, here if someone had it, I mean. You just take drink some Gatorade and, and sort of wait. If it's not a severe strain, then you should be okay. But over there, they don't have water. They don't. They don't have much water. They don't have Gatorade. Um, <laughs> so it's like you know, it can really, it can really hurt. Um, and especially older people, young babies, um, and you know, immunocompromised people, it, it affects them a lot worse than it would you know someone like you and me. Um, so yeah, so we saw a treatment center from who was actually a really nice treatment center. That was like the one thing that just stood out. I was like, so like who had a really our WHO had a really nice uh, treatment center, and we saw people with cholera there. And they said the numbers were actually getting better because they were teaching people. Um, they were they were educating the public on like washing your hands. It's it's very easily. I mean, it's not very easy, but it's easy to um, uh, prevent and st- like you just need to wash your hands, drink cl- you know drink from clean water sources. Um, so they had been able to drop the numbers, but what was happening, they said, was that every time they would, you know, drop the numbers, uh, some other internally or some other displaced person would come, and then another outbreak would happen. And it just that's why the number is so high. It's seven hundred thousand. Um, seven hundred thousand. So, yeah, that um, what was the other place I was going to say about Yeah, Jof. I mean, they and apparently the cholera was like the malnutrition cholera was actually worse in Jof, and I didn't get to see that, but. But you did see a number of cholera cases in oh, Marib. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what else? So you had your five days in Marib. Were, were there any? Was there anything else of note that you wanted to share? Anything oh, that happened or um, you saw? Actually, did you yeah. get to go to the masjid and pray and like mix <laughs> with regular people? Not much because of the security. Um, the only masjid there was sort of musalla in the hotel um, that had jam- that had five times jamaat, uh, but not. I didn't get to go to any um, masjids. We had like this. 24-hour security, just, you know, soldiers and cars that followed us everywhere, and I wasn't able to go out on my own. Um, and one of the things, actually, one of my favorite trips there was we went to this uh, re- this school. It was rehabilitation for child soldiers. Um, these were um, children who uh, basically were just, like, recruited to, like, I don't think they really I mean some of them fought I heard but most of them were just like carrying weapons and doing like you know stuff for the military and whenever and and these kids were rescued and and they're all suffering from PTSD trauma a lot you know these are the ones that actually like you know made it out of I mean a lot of them you know were killed in the in the in the fighting but these are kids that got out but suffering from a lot of psychological trauma um and there were you know a lot of them were orphans and we went to the school to visit them and <clears throat> I remember when we got there um, we were just talking to the teacher about like you know like what kind of things these kids deal with and they were just telling us about PTSD type symptoms you know um, and we so we decided it, it, these kids weren't like physically sick so we weren't really there to like treat them and we didn't have a psychiatrist with us it was um, but we just decided just for the sake of it we just started examining them um, just to sort of like give them hope and maybe feel like well an American doctor examined me so we just started, there was like 40, I don't know, 30 kids in the classroom. We just started like listening to their heart and lungs and just doing a like quick little checkup. And they were like really happy and really appreciative. These kids were like like running up in line and trying to like cut one another just to get to like, <laughs> just to like come in, uh, come in with us uh, and get, you know, get seen. So I don't know, we saw all of them. They were really happy. Um, 
uh, and like at the end of it, <laughs> we were asked like, "Oh, who is going to become a doctor?" And they all started like raising their hands. So it was it was nice Allah to just sort of like um, see a smile on their face, and um, and I suspect that's like a tar- like, that's somewhere that we feel like we you know we would send uh, you know maybe a team of psychiatrists or something to in the future. Um, that's what this trip mainly was. It was the first ta- first trip for Med Global, and it was like the first trip to Yemen. Uh, and like I said before, Madib said this is the first time Americans have ever come there, or NGOs have come there. Um, so this was just sort of to assess the situation. Um, we did a little bit of treatment, only like four days worth, but you know, just to sort of um, assess and, and, and jot down what we felt like we needed to do. And so the next time you know, we go or they send out other groups, it, it's you know, longer and you know, maybe safer because now we know how to go, where to go. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully more benefit. So it's interesting you said that regarding the kids that, mashallah, the whatever seeing them and treating them kind of gave them some hope and mm. encouraged them and things like that. I think a lot of what people forget about is that people going through these types of tragedies and suffering these types of you know catastrophic uh, circumstances. You know, pe- people, a human being can only take so much. Like. So your phase, if you were born in Yemen and you're in Ma'rib and like you're, you're an IDP, even if you were just as smart, even if you're just as hardworking, even if you, um, you know, put in as much effort, you wouldn't have a future. Your only future would be like a child soldier or something like that. So people who go through those things, um, you know, I think one of the most beautiful things is like you can't save everybody. You can only see a few people. But when people hear someone came to help, it gives them hope. It makes them happy. I mean, they know you're a Muslim. They saw you have a beard and you have all these things, and they know they know that the you know that that there's a community behind uh, you that cares for them, that has concern for them, and sometimes just that in and of itself can be enough to make a person, I don't know, not give up on on trying because mm-hmm. you can't give up when you're in such desperate situation. That's the time you can least afford to give up. Mm-hmm. Uh, over here, subhanAllah, like somebody fails a class, someone's girlfriend leaves them. Obviously, girlfriend is haram, not supposed to have a girlfriend. <laughs> but like, you know, someone's girlfriend leaves them or someone, you know, something happens. You know, they, they lost some money. They got into a car accident. Like little things happen and people get so like freaked out and like just give up and like they're just fed up with everything. Whereas you have some people over there have been through extraordinarily excruciating circumstances and uh, they may, after all of that, you know, endurance reached wit's end. And it's good, mashallah, somebody goes and says something to them positive or doesn't. Imagine child soldiers. These kids may have seen people getting killed. They may have had to kill people. They may have had to do things in order to survive that that, that even an, an adult would get messed up from. But then, like, going there and letting them be kids, like you, what you were saying, like, you know, stuff like they're running up in line in order to be seen. And what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a doctor. These are all, like, really, like, normal childhood experiences, you know? Like, giving them that hope and, like, restoring that. That's, like, that's, mashallah, that's that's beautiful to hear about. Uh, so, cool, mashallah. We've been going on for some time. Uh, and it's it's getting late, so I don't want to keep you for too long. But, um, you know, maybe tell me a little bit about... Uh, whatever else you'd want to mention about Ma'rib and then about the process of coming back mm-hmm. home and maybe a little bit about like after on the heels of all of this if somebody's listening you know and they're a doctor or mm-hmm. you know they're not a doctor or whatever mm-hmm. you know what would what would on the heels of this experience while it's still fresh what would you uh, want to say to people um, in terms of what you learned from this experience and what you would like them to do to give back in order to uh, in order to, to help out, whether it be in Yemen or there's this catastrophe going on in, in Myanmar and uh, across the border in Bangladesh or any number of places where all this difficulty is going, the Hurricane Irma and Harvey, Maria, Jose, <laughs> but any like you know yeah. uh, earthquake in Mexico City, anyone who sees other people suffering, you know what what can they do for others? So I'm pretty much in Mar. Besides that, I mean, besides treating patients, um, you know, I talked about some of the worst cases I saw. I talked about the the school. Um, just the people there were so nice. They were so welcoming. Like, the one thing that stood out to me was the that 
it's just like you never saw any like anytime you looked at one of them they smiled like it, it was sort of intimidating it in the beginning because everyone had a gun on them like <laughs> but like if you like literally like I, w- I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to like try to... See, Second Amendment, NRA people, Muslims are not so bad, right? They have guns and they have smiles, you know. Nobody, nobody's going to jack you uh, at the 7-Eleven because it's going to be like tribal warfare, right? Yeah. So like I would go up to random... Like I just decided, you know, like I would just say salam to like everybody. Like I just felt like I wanted all of them to sort of... I don't know, because it, it seemed like we were so important. Everyone was around us all the time. So I decided like every soldier that was like guarding us or you know random people who were helping us out serving us food whatever it was i would just like go oh, so they would just like have this like bright smile on their face and i talked to some of the guys i remember the one of the guys who was my translator he was this guy was not only my translator but he helped with like everything he would work like he was around us like 24 7 he's always helping us uh his name was baha and he told me he was from sana and when the war happened he had to flee because he was a young male and so he had to flee and he his mom and dad were left in Sana'a and they couldn't come to Maradim and he couldn't go to Sana'a and he hadn't seen them for two years. And then I found out later, so I asked him, oh, Baha, are you married? Because he looked around 23, 24 and he said, oh, I'm engaged. And I said, oh, really? How long have you been engaged for? He said, two years. And he was basically engaged to get married right before the war broke out and then he, you know, it's been two years and his fiance or whatever was in Sana'a so he's not, he's just been sort of stuck in in Maradim by himself for like two years, him and his, one of his friends. So he just like, you know, just talking to him, he just he kept smiling. That's why I was so surprised. Like, man, you're in such a horrible situation. But he's like, you know, Alhamdulillah. Like, he knew English, he was a translator. And I remember him saying, like, you know, Inshallah. Like, uh, he kept saying, Alhamdulillah. And Inshallah, he's like, you know, Allah SWT will make it better. You know, and he was just so, like, I mean, he looked, it's, it's so sincere. I know, like, like you said, if I fail the exam, I'm just like, oh man, why me? Like, my life sucks and whatever. But <laughs> this guy had, like, everything took, taken away from him and he just. Like I said, he was he was hopeful. He was he was always smiling. He was you know, and it just that that sort of experiences like that sort of like the Yemeni people were just like they had a lot of iman. Um, well, that's that Rasul Sallallahu is a hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He was so pleased with his Yemeni companions, Abu Musa Al Ashari, radiAllahu Taala Anhu. He said that uh, iman is Yemeni and wisdom is Yemeni. And uh, mashallah, Yemeni people, their services for Islam are so many. They, the entire country accepted the deen without one soldier having to walk on their land uh, during the lifetime of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And they accepted Sayyidina Mu'adh bin Jabal and Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhumah as governors and judges. And um, the armies of Yemen were the armies that uh, conquered Andalusia. They're the armies that, that fortified Sham. They stood guard. Uh, for centuries, uh, f- for centuries at the, the the border, the most dangerous border of the Muslim lands, which was the one w- with the Romans, because the Romans always uh, uh, wanted to dispense with with the Muslims, because Syria, Palestine, these places traditionally were their lands, um, and so uh, and many of our mashaykh are either from Yemeni descent or uh, they have some sort of connection with Yemen whether they be historical or, or contemporary. So it's really, mashallah, it's nice because a person thinks that, that somebody or a people did so much service for the deen and uh, we owe so much to them. It's nice that a person gets a chance to do something back, you know, in return. Mm-hmm. It may not be enough to compensate, but at least it's something. Mm-hmm. So you were you tasted a little bit of that, the people's happiness and the people's iman, mashallah. Yeah, and they kept asking, are you coming back? When are you coming back? When are you coming back? So, I mean, uh, I'm still talking to some of them on WhatsApp. I got their number. Really? So, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> I just talked to one of them the other day. So it, it, was, it was really, I mean, great experience in terms of just like the people, just like getting to know them and having that connection. And sometimes, I, you know, from someone else told me when I was there that like, you know, a lot of these guys, like they don't know anything about America and they think, oh, these guys don't care about us or they don't like, you know, they don't even know us. Or, but I think the fact that we came there and just, you know, they knew that, you know, we were taking, you know, it was a risky trip, and we and we took our time to like take you know to you know to help, and so they really, they, I think they really liked that. They were really touched. Do they like? Before we left, we had like the governor took us to his house, had like a feast, and basically like gave us awards like he gave me like a big jug of Yemeni honey which is supposed to be like the best honey and yeah like, that's <laughs> that's worth like hundreds of dollars if you're not going to use that by the way you just bring it by my house inshallah I got yeah. you sir yeah <laughs> Allahu Akbar mashallah uh, mashallah but uh yeah so they're they're really appreciative um but yeah so then that's pretty much the, I mean the, the gist of the trip uh, I don't want to go into all the details but like we had to cut our trip short the last day 
on uh, Thursday. On uh, so we were supposed to leave initially Friday. Um, we left Thursday. There was some something going on with like with the war. There there were some security concerns, and they decided that it was best for us to just leave um, Thursday night. And which and you know in the middle of the night. So I remember like. They're just like, all right, time to go. And we had like. So was the <laughs> was the trip back as scary and crazy as the? <laughs> it was even scary because it's at nighttime, yeah, right? Yeah. So what happened was that's that, when you get jacked is at night. <laughs> I was basically like, I had just gotten like used to everything, and I was stopped. You know, I was like not that scared, and I remember I just got comfortable with where I was, and it was like, you know, the plan was to leave Friday after Juma, and it was like Thursday night, and some jet had gotten shot down somewhere, and, and and so there were concerns about like flights, and then we found out that all the flights out of Yemen are canceled, and we were like the airport's grounded, and we were like what? <laughs> so then there was talks about like taking helicopters to like some other country, then getting to Cairo, and I was just like, so eventually it was like two a.m. and they were like, there's a flight leaving Sayoun at uh, six a.m. and we were, we just like ran to our rooms, packed as much as we could, and just like got in cars and like you know the same situation. Um, that that apparently that 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 militia that was, that drove us there was fighting somewhere, so they couldn't come. So we had to get like the police officers who actually like escorted us all the way back to so you and, and they were going like 140 kilometers at night. You can't see them. there's no street lights. You're just like headlights, and that's all. And you're just going as fast as you can. Checkpoints. system. It was just like it was it was a tense uh, drive because we a lot of it was so now you know the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam that the 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 dust of the road imagine the the sahaba radiyallahu anhum would go out in the path of allah rasulullah said even just the dust of the road when it gets into your eyes and enters into your nostrils it protects them as a an immunity and a shield from the hellfire so obviously it's not free but it's worth it inshallah yeah, yeah. um so yeah, we get to the so we get to the Sayun Airport. And it was a dusty road, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that trip was horrible. It was because the, like, the roads are horrible, and you're sitting in these cars with the suspensions not that great, anyways. And you're just like, it was. I felt like I was on like a 13 hour flight or something after, but yeah. it was and it was scary. You're just driving. I don't. This is reminding me of Mauritania. This yeah. is what like what my time in Mauritania was like. <laughs> I mean, with less like threat of like getting killed yeah. from like gunfire but yeah. like the bad suspension yeah. and going on like unpaved roads yeah. and it's just yeah. you just like shook it shook it up like a like a omelet yeah it, yeah. Was, oh, it was horrible and we had that 70 year old actor with us i felt so bad for him but he was he was so like i said he's in good shape so um so anyways we ended up getting to say you in the flight left so we were all the flight left without you we were so that was like the worst feeling we we're like because there was plans to ground the airport and we were like what so we get we were like freaking out for it. We were like got into a hotel. We we're like, what are we gonna do? We we're gonna drive to Oman. Siyun's in Hadar remote, right? So it's probably a fair bit safer than Hadar. Yeah, Siyun right? was Siyun was there. Nobody had guns there. Like it's mm. not a militarized place. I think they were getting upset that we were there because we had all the security with us. We had to actually send the security away because it was like scaring people. I see. Um, so Siyun was yeah, um, and but. Yeah, we just were making all these weird plans, like drive drive to the border of Oman or like go on a boat and somehow get somewhere And Sayun, for, for the people who don't know, Sayun is probably about halfway to the border of Oman anyway from yeah. Sana'a, right? Yeah. yeah. And um, we were talking, thinking, we were thinking about driving to Adan. That was a 13-hour drive and we were like... So it, actually, no, it was long. You asked me that before. Adan was, was 13 hours, but I don't think it was distance. I think it was just it was mountains just and going through random... Checkpoints and, yeah, and yeah. stuff, yeah. So we, we alhamdulillah, by like 1 or 2 p.m., we found out there's another flight that was supposed to go to Cairo the next day. The <laughs> We were like, all right, cool. We got, the, we, we got we the governor talked to the Yemeni Airlines or something happened. We ended up getting seats on it, even though the flight was booked. Um, we got our seats um, <laughs> that night that we, we saw the pilot. He was in our hotel for the flight. And he's like, yeah, I know there's a 50% chance I'm going to go tomorrow. I don't know. We'll see. Like, it was just really like tense. We're just like, just get me out You're of like, here. You're like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> so, like, Please just take me home. <laughs> so, so even that night, I remember I didn't get enough sleep. I was just like, I was just making the, I was just like, just, just, let me get home. <laughs> I, I See, that's good. You're making dua, right? So you've you've gone on Jamaat before. <laughs> what you done? Forty days before? Yeah, thirty-five. <laughs> thirty-five, mashallah. See that was that was that helpful at all in the process? Yeah, I mean that was the one thing I learned in Jamaat is that like if you don't if you're not if there's no mujahid then you're just sort of like, you sort of like mujahid when you go to Jamaat because like the more mujahid that you feel like it just sort of spiritually has an effect on you. So I mean, anytime I was like suffering, I was just like, you know what, this is good. It's just anytime I was sad, like scared or sad, I was sort of happy afterwards. I was just like, you know. Allah Ta'ala have mercy on our Akabir Mashaykh, mashallah. They knew that one of the many fawaid of Jamaat is that it will train people from the Ummah. Not everybody is going to be a lazy coward. It'll train some people, inshallah, that they can go out and, uh, you know, help 
help the Ummah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and help other people um, because they'll have the, the, the adab and the etiquettes of going out in the path of Allah Ta'ala uh, somewhat down so when they actually have to go in an emergency or dangerous situation uh, they can keep it together rather than melting down and flipping out which I'm sure many people would have if they were in that situation. So, mashallah, okay, so you got the next day, you got the flight? Got the flight. <laughs> we took off. Once the wheels were up, I was like, oh, okay, cool. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> we landed in Cairo. We met some, that day we met some, like, Yemeni businessmen who were living in Cairo, and they mm-hmm. were just, like, wanting to hear about the trip, and they were talking about funding. And, like, alhamdulillah, it was, a really, it was really beneficial, actually. This guy was a Yemeni guy who gave 40% of his profits back to the country. So we talked a lot about, like, you know, what we would do in the future in terms of, like, telemedicine or future trips and um, Alhamdulillah pretty much and then I flew back to Chicago <laughs> mashallah, stopped so in Turkey first though <laughs> oh you stopped in yeah. Turkey that's nice yeah. mashallah I, I hope I hope you ate well uh, mashallah okay that's good so you you made it back yeah. your, your parents and your wife can have you again um, so what what now that now that you survived and you didn't get taken out by uh, rebel forces or cholera or any other number of strange difficulties you went through um, what 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 do you want to say uh, to someone who listens to this story? <clears throat> you know, if some medical student or non medical student or whatever, what do you want to say to people? Is there something you learned from this? Is there some you know something that you want them to do? Uh, what 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 do you want to say? Um, so to the medical student or the resident or the physician, whoever. Um, I mean, I know, like you said earlier, you know, everyone always says I want to help people. Um. No matter how, I mean, there's always a percentage of truth to that, I think. Um, just try, try to think about it. Like, think about when you first Excuse decided. me, I'm just in the corner snickering. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying there's a little bit of you that, that wants to help, you know? Like, um, I mean, that's why you stay late in the clinic when you don't have to, or you, you know, spend extra time on that patient when you, you know, didn't really need to. There's that. There's and if a, you're not doing that, maybe you should start. <laughs> maybe that's a good place to start as well. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry to... <laughs> jump in I, I'm sorry to assume the worst about other people maybe I do so because I just I'm looking at myself rather than anyone else but anyway go on please go on so I would say to channel that and 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 just you know read about the situation like, you know I didn't know much about it and I heard she comes just talk about it and it, it enlightened me so like um you know just hear read about it um read about Burma and, and Yemen and Syria and all these places and and you know you can talk to people who, who've been there and you can talk you know it has an effect on these people. You know, yeah, you might see, I saw maybe 40, 50 patients in, in, in the week I was there. And some of the physicians I was with were faster than me and, and more trained. They saw like 100, uh, you know, 100 each. But I think the effect that it had on the, the whole town of Ma'arib, like they put us on the news and they were like, it just seemed like it, it was it was really beneficial. And and just to see how people are living in, in areas like that, it brings, it makes you feel... It makes me feel bad for complaining about things. I'll just put it like that. Like, a lot of my problems that I had before I went, I mean, they're just, they're nothing now Like when I, when I think about it. And I hope it, I mean, it stays like that. So I'm a lot more content. Um, but yeah, I would tell the, so the medical people, I would say, just try to channel that, 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 that feeling of wanting to help people. And, and these are people that really need it, you know? I mean, people here need it, but like I said, you know, over there they had 10, mil- 10 doctors for, 10 internal medicine doctors for 3 million people. There's a lot of doctors here, and they'll be these patients will be seen in places like this that are in dire need. Uh, you know, people are too. You know, there's people who won't go, um, and there's people who you know are too busy to go. Whatever the situation is, I mean, if you can, uh, you can make a difference, even if it's just one patient. I mean, it's worth it. Um, and for the non for the people who aren't doing medicine, I mean, just like I remember, like my brother-in-law actually, <laughs> I was telling him the story. And he was like so excited. He's getting like he's like he's like, can I go? <laughs> he just like he's like, is there anything that a non-medical person could do? And 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 I think you can like even even with this group that I went with, um, the they had a Syria trip a few years ago, and uh, like I said, there's a female doctor. Her husband went with her on the trip, and and, and I asked him about it, and he, they were like, oh, he was he was such a good help. He like he took care of the kids. He played with the kids. He helped out with everything, like so much. Like he and he came with his wife, but he helped out a lot. And and and. And there's there's so many things that you can do. Uh, I mean, I don't know much about it because I don't have experience in, in there. But like, people go out and they there's, I mean, I think the same benefits apply. Um, besides that, I don't know. So tell me, okay, do me a favor. Tell me the name of the the group you went with again. Maybe mm-hmm. if you know what their website is or any sort of like way that people can contact in case somebody wants to 
help out mm. uh, with them, whether by uh, going themselves if they're qualified and uh, it'll be helpful for them to go, or by uh, means of financial donations, because whatever you can't do yourself, you can always pay for and mm. help finance for somebody else. One of those, you know, them suitcases of medicine and stuff don't mm. buy themselves, so... Mm. Um, so the organization is Med Global, M E D G L O B A L. Um, it's the website's medglobal.org. Um, they have a Twitter account, Med Global, Facebook. So I mean, in terms of contacting, um, if uh, I mean, if you just go on the Twitter or you go on the website, you'd have an email. Um, they have this WhatsApp group that that's that that a lot of people. Um, have been joining um there's one there's a, the next mission uh actually this october uh, end of october is going to uh, the border of bangladesh and uh, myanmar oh my goodness um, how much they need so much yeah, help over so there. The, right now it's, it's actually it's actually it's pretty cool <laughs> like so that group was like it just started um so it's like it's called like rohingya men global or something is the name of the group and and every day I'm just seeing like a bunch of people just joining and, 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 and um, getting motivated by like other people going. You know, like when we, we put pictures of like Yaman up and people just started signing up to go to Burma. Uh, or Myanmar. So um, so that's the way, like I think just going to the website or going going to the website, you know, there's there's links there to donate. Um, and you're right, like the medicines, the more you donate, the more medicine we can bring. Like honestly, like we, you know, this was a trip. I, I found out about this trip like 10 days before. It was hard to get a lot of medication, but we only take eight suitcases, but... Um, there's a lot of stuff we wish we could have brought, um, you know, in terms of um, funding for, like, there's so many things that we're trying to do there. We want to get more dialysis machines, like you mentioned before. Oh, in NPR, on the NPR uh, bit, they mentioned that there's only, like, six dialysis machines there, and there's three million people there. That's nothing. So people are dying when for no reason, basically. Um, so stuff like that, you know, we're talking about getting dialysis machines, having, you know, oncology centers. There's no oncologist in that whole in, in and it's not like cancer is not widespread over oh, there, right? <laughs> they all chew cut. Everyone chews cut in that houses. Um, mm. They all have. Uh, I mean, not all, but there's a lot did of. Did you did you scold anyone for cut? Did you tell them <laughs> you guys are crazy? <laughs> You don't have enough water to grow this crop, much less like medical resources to deal with. That was the like, that there. was more sorry, more than the medical. We're like, how do you afford this? Like the kids here are starving. How are you affording God? It's a pretty expensive. Apparently, it says it's like ten dollars a day or something. I think the, the a lot price. Of protect um, us stuff for a but yeah, it does cause medical. You know, I mean, from what we know, it you know it can lead to oropharyngeal cancer, or laryngeal cancer. Um. Um. But yeah, like. Uh, so like there's can there is cans like you said there's uh and there's there was no oncologist in that whole town there is in there was no there was oh that was actually I forgot to mention one of the worst things that's going on there and I, I since I'm not in pediatrics I think it slipped my mind um, the rates of cerebral palsy are very high there and this is just because um, there's so many people there there's not enough you know obviously like I said there's only one hospital so I think the the statistic was like out of seven thousand births like one thousand are monitored. So that means 6,000 are not monitored. And the 1,000 that are monitored, it's just like midwives who aren't trained in neonatology, just, you know, taking care of the mother. So there's so many kids that, you know, that nobody knows what to do with them. And if they don't cry, so for, so what happens with kids is that after they're born, if they don't cry within a certain amount of time or they're not breathing or they're blue, um, you need to give them oxygen. And if you don't, that's a critical time, that's a critical window at that point that they end up with something called cerebral palsy. Um, and it can be from anything like you're, you know, paraly being paralyzed. Uh, you can be cognitively slow. So there's so many kids that came into the pediatric side. I wasn't there. I saw a few of them though, um, that couldn't walk, um, couldn't, you know, couldn't talk, uh, couldn't use an arm, and their parents were like just, you know, hoping like these, you know, the American doctors had some kind of treatment. And unfortunately, we didn't. You can't do anything about it. And it was so sad because it was so preventable. These are like little kids who their whole life, you know, like all they needed to do was some oxygen at the time of, you know, at that time. And they would have been, you know, normal. So that's something I think that's the next thing they're going to work on: um, training the midwives in, in neonatology and having some kind of way of getting these mothers, like, you know, access to like healthcare. So. Um, yeah, that's. I mean, it's important. It's good that you went and you saw this, and now you can tell people because uh, people are a lot more moved by hearing something from someone they know who's an eyewitness rather than like generic facts and statistics. Um, so there it is. Uh, uh, Med Global. Uh, also, if you wish to, Islamic Relief has a number of projects. They were in Yemen doing de development projects before the war broke out. And now that the war is bro broken out, they're one of the very, very few 
international uh, aid organizations working in Yemen and probably the only one that's as well spread out through Yemen. So that's Islamic Relief, IRUSA.org. Uh, and I'll try to put a link in when I post this um, when I post this audio for both organizations. And uh, so if you're a medical professional and you're able to go and your wife and your parents are not going to throw a freak attack, get off your duff, go on the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is a, an act of piety that's unlike praying and unlike fasting. This is something that a person just when they take their first step, their sins are forgiven. Every other breath, every hour spent awake, every fear, every hour spent sleeping, everything you eat, you drink, all of it is a, another sin forgiven and another good deed written and another uh, uh, level elevated. So leave your house for the sake of Allah Ta'ala and in service of your brothers and sisters. And uh, uh, for those of you who cannot go for whatever reasons, uh, and then spend in the path of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. Because struggling in the path of Allah Ta'ala is one of the most, if not the highest praised virtue in the book of Allah Ta'ala. And then after that, uh, is spending in the path of Allah Ta'ala. Spend in the path of Allah Ta'ala here, Burma, wherever it is, whatever. If, it, if you are struggling just to support your family, then struggle a little bit more. Um, struggle, inshallah. Don't give up hope. Keep, keep, keep moving. Keep doing something better for, for, for the future of the ummah in this world and for your own future in the hereafter. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from all of you. Allah ta'ala accept from you, Bhai uh, Faiz, and from all those who went with you. Allah ta'ala make it a means of your salvation and salvation of the ones that you love uh, in this world and in the hereafter. I wanted to mention, I popped this interview uh, as a surprise <laughs> on you. He came just to meet me in sincerity, not wanting to show off or any of these things. Uh, and I know that that wouldn't have occurred to him. Uh, because I didn't want to take away from his reward or damage his reward with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, in the least. But, uh, uh, you know, these are things that, that, that we should do. These are what make us Muslims. These are what our forefathers did. Uh, if you believe me or you don't, there were people from the ummah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam whose entire life didn't revolve around Facebook and phones and cars and money. Uh, but they actually uh, used to hold these things more dear than, than, than the worldly people hold their money in their their uh, worldly things so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revive that in all of our hearts I wanted to thank you again it's an inspiration for all of us Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh